The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Woo. Good morning, everybody. I am so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to be here with all of you. I'm so grateful to have the choir with us. Reiko, thank you for that gorgeous moving prelude. And I am really thankful to have a few special guests with us today, not including the ones on the chancel. So it seems really fitting that in this first Sunday in Advent, we really should have as our opening hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because Emmanuel Class, who's our membership director and young adult programming manager, he is here with us, having flown in yesterday from Arizona. So Emmanuel, if you don't mind just standing up and turning around so people can see you, welcome. So please, you know, get to know him, make him feel welcome, share your vision for how to, we can be more welcoming as a community or any programming ideas you have and, uh, you know, answer his questions so that we pull him into the embrace as quickly as possible and fully. And then we are also lucky to have with us Sonia Sukalski, who is the minister, you can stand up. Sonia is the minister who's gonna be helping us during sabbatical in January and February. She'll be helping us 10 hours a week, which is a joke, but we have scaled her job description down and we're just lucky to have your wisdom and experience and big heart and a lot of your calling to the justice work that we do with a pastoral heart. So we're really, really grateful. Um, you'll get to hear and see more of um, Sonia starting in January. So I am also lucky to have with me today two people. Bruce Newberger, who is one of our incredible lay social justice leaders with a big heart also, who's doing our reflection this week and who leads so many of our sort of visionary um, conversations, but also is out in the world and connected in ways, um, both with the intellectual conversations of our day, but also what's happening in San Francisco. And so um, I'm really excited for all of you who haven't heard Bruce to get to hear just a little bit of his story today. I want to name that Hanukkah, we're just in the midst of holy days and holidays. Hanukkah begins on the 6th, um, Bodhi Day, which is the day in Buddhism where um, you celebrate uh, the Buddha's enlightenment. That is going to be on Friday next. And today is actually the day that the UN celebrates every December 3rd, International Persons with Disability Day. And we had actually planned to do a service in honor um, of our, the, this conversation with disability as a community. Um, and, and Richard Davis Lowell had written a beautiful reflection on his relationship with Andre, his little brother, who's not, not little anymore. Um, and if you got uh, the book, um, what is it called? Um, little Did I Know? The, uh, the anthology that I um, edited. There's a piece by Richard also about Andre. And I just want to name that part of being part of a worship team and creating worship is often um, getting shoved aside <laughs> for what needs to be front and center. And so Richard and I have tabled that service. We're going to do it later in the spring. And I just want to thank the big heart and um, shared vision that Richard brings to our, our work. Um, I'm always grateful to be up here with him. So thanks to all of you for being here. Welcome to everyone who's joining us online too. It's lovely to have our live stream folks with us. And let us begin our worship together. Welcome. 
Will you join me in our unison chalice lighting? The words are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. We have not done this hymn for a while, but it really feels appropriate today. It's um, hymn number 1009 in your hymnal, the meditation on breathing. If you know it, you really don't have to open up the hymnal. Um, when I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. So let's rise as we're able, body, spirit, and sing it together, letting ourselves get lost in the rhythm and the flow of it. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in. Good morning. I'm Galen Workman, a member of the Board of Trustees. If this is your first time joining us in person or on live stream, thanks for joining us. If you'd like to receive a copy of our weekly email newsletter, which includes a link to the order of service in Sunday live stream, you can fill out one of our yellow connection forms. And these forms are in the pew in front of you, the welcome table outside, and there's also uh, in the live stream chat area. The order of service lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect. Please engage in any or all that are of interest to you. I want to call your attention especially to today's holiday fair. I'm again dressed up in a red shirt in honor of the holiday fair, which is after service today. Please come and enjoy the festivities. There are quality items 
and some odd items that you can buy as gifts for friends and family. There's a lunch, a tea room, and the pub will accept donations for beer and wine, and you can also donate to participate in the raffle. I've been asked to take pictures, so I want to see your ugly Christmas sweater. Please come on down. We do have an active congregational calendar with noteworthy events, which we invite you to join in. Here are three highlights. This Wednesday at 6.30, we'll be having a discussion in the King Rooms about the events concerning former Minister Stephen Fuhrer. Representatives of the Unitarian Universalist Association will be facilitating the talk. The next Sunday, our guest minister is one of the founding staff people of Sacred, who is flying in from DC to celebrate our, our congregation's commitment to an interfaith community speaking nationally to reproductive justice as a moral issue. The Sacred is, uh, Reverend, I'm sorry, Reverend Angela Tyler Williams is co-director for Mo movement building at Sacred, which is the Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. Sacred is an alliance of religious leaders, congregations, organizations, activists, and academic people collaborating to advance reproductive justice through congregational statements, culture change, community building, and direct service. Angela is a queer pastor ordained by the Presbyterian Church in her call to engage people of faith to speak publicly and politically in support of reproductive health, rights, and justice in queer equality. The Senator for American Progress named Angela as one of the 22 faith leaders to watch in 2022. So come here, Angela, next week. And finally, a week from Thursday on December 14th at 5 p.m., you're invited to join other members participating in the Homeless Memorial Vigil at Civic Center. These are the special items I wanted to call your attention to. But before we pause to greet one another, I want to give an invitation to those of you on live stream to participate on greetings and chat. Maybe say hi and shout out your favorite past holiday fair experience. And now, on live stream and in person, let's take a moment to greet one another. So today, the story for all ages is somewhat unusual, and I'm going to try and tell it sort of just without a full script. So people of the Unitarian Universalist religious education community, some of our greatest heroes, and you can tell your friends that at church, your minister told a story about someone that they think you should imitate who um, went to jail this month, all right? How many people in this congregation have, you can admit or not, went to, have gone to jail in their lives? All right, all right. For various reasons, I'm sure, yes. Well, I mean, that our criminal justice system at work, 
Bruce has gone many, many, many times. <laughs> and this week, I and Bruce and Mary Castiglia and Dolores and David and Jordan, didn't I say that? I said Dolores, I gave her credit. Dolores has been in jail too. David, her husband, wants me to let you know that Dolores has been. Actually, Dolores and Bruce have been in jail together. So, welcome to church. Uh, and this week, a bunch of us went to Santa Rosa to the courthouse because one of our members, our newer members, Wayne Shun, was uh, put in jail for work that he does that comes out of his values. So Wayne is someone who is raised Buddhist and has now found a home among this Unitarian Universalist community where we have such a wide a range of beliefs, but we work together in the service of a love, a service of a life of love and meaning. And Wayne's work, his life work, although he's a lawyer, is animal activism because he believes in nonviolence and he believes in compassion and it really upsets him the way animals are treated, often in farms where they're prepared to be served at our tables. He's a vegan, he doesn't eat animals or animal products, that's also part of his expression of his faith tradition. And Wayne's perspective, and that of those who've joined him in the movement, is that they raise awareness about when there are violations in a factory farm, and if inspectors don't come or things don't change, they believe in the right to rescue. Which is to say, they organize to break into these farms or factories and rescue the animals who seem sick or ailing or in trouble, which is against the law because you can't break into someone else's property and you can't steal things that are theirs. But he believes there's this moral calling to rescue those, those animals that's more important than the laws against trespassing and stealing. And he hopes maybe even to enshrine in the law the right to rescue, which is why he's willing to go to jail. But all of this is not entirely why I want to tell his story today, though that would be worthy of it. It's that part of what was introduced into evidence on his behalf in the trial was a letter from one of the largest meat manufacturing companies in America, from one of its, the members of the family that owns it, Rick Pittman. And the letter, Dolores, you saw it, Bruce, you saw it, almost brings you to tears. It is so beautiful. So I want to read just a little bit of it. My name is Rick Pittman, and I'm the owner of Pittman Family Farms, a business that began in 1954. Today, we are about 2,500 employees, and we operate in California and Utah. I met Wayne in 2018, and I'm expurgating, or was that right? Is that the right word? I'm editing greatly so that we can get through this. In 2018, under what might be considered unusual circumstances, which you can probably imagine, Wayne was demonstrating outside the gate with about 50 people to let us know they were concerned about the welfare of our birds. Before I met Wayne, he'd actually entered our chicken farms in California and our turkey farm in Utah without permission. Wayne had been charged with stealing some of our turkeys from the farms in Utah. The turkey was in bad shape. Sometimes turkeys will bully each other in the pecking order until one of the turkeys is killed by their brothers or sisters and Wayne found a turkey who'd been bullied so badly so he removed the turkey and he put a video online. Wayne was just trying to save the turkey's life 
Well, we in the past had never responded to Wayne because we were scared, and I think that's the reason most animal farmers don't respond to Wayne because of fear. We're scared of engaging with Wayne, that it will lead to worse outcomes than ignoring him, but the opposite has been true. He has transformed the ways we think about animal welfare and the way we interact with activists. I can honestly say I'm grateful for Wayne. I did what I always do, do in the moments I found him outside the gates that first day. I tried to start a conversation. We went out and we talked for an hour. I learned where he was coming from and what concerns he has. I also found out that in all the years that Wayne has advocated for animal welfare, I'm the only person who has come out and actually talked to him. And we continue talking since because we need to resolve our differences. If we don't have dialogue, we'll all lose. The farmers, the activists, the animals. We've learned a lot from each other by agreeing to talk instead of fight over the years. We at Pittman have made a lot of improvements to animal welfare in our farms. And every year around Thanksgiving, we freeze some turkeys and hand them over to Wayne and his organization as a gesture of goodwill between us as the farmers and the activists who care for the animals' welfare. The turkeys are put on animal sanctuaries and reserves across the Western United States. We both believe it is only through conversations and a willingness to compromise that we can resolve our differences and do what's best for each other and the animals. We need less prosecution and more conversation because if we fight, we lose. He's the best activist I've ever worked with. Wayne is a good person. Stories we need to hear. Will you join me in our unison covenant? The words are printed in your order of service and will follow with our sung doxology. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
Good morning, everyone. I remember as a child being asked to bring nickels to religious school to plant trees in Israel. The school was at a synagogue in Long Beach called, coincidentally, Temple Israel. The trees, we were told, were to beautify a land, an empty land that had recently been settled by Jewish refugees from Europe. This was easy for me to understand. My parents and most of my relatives and family friends were German refugees forced to leave their homeland. My mother told me stories about her village, how the Nazis made their lives miserable and dangerous. But she'd also said things to me like, our neighbors were never mean to us, and she had stories of how the town's mayor, after 1933, acted to protect her widowed mother and their family. My father grew up in Munich, where most of his friends were not Jews. Then one day in 1933, he went to the sports club he belonged to, and a new sign on the door said, Jews not allowed. He could no longer associate with non-Jewish athletes who'd been his longtime friends. Both my parents were able to emigrate before things became very dangerous, not so for many others and their families. In the late 1950s, my father became an active fundraiser for the United Jewish Appeal. I'd hear him on the phone explaining why Jews had to support Israel. It made sense to me. Jewishness. There was religion, but as a young teen, science seemed much more interesting. And then there was, in middle school, a game where kids threw pennies on the ground. If you picked one up, you were a Jew. I never picked up a penny. Even the one that was thrown at me in the cafeteria line one day by guys I thought were my friends, until I turned and one of them scowled, dirty Jew. So there was Israel, refugees, and prejudice. I avoided discussing religion, ashamed more than angry, and I kept all of this largely to myself. Then came the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement of the 1960s. My understanding of the world changed dramatically. It was from black people that I and millions of others learned that it was right to rebel against discrimination and racism. My naive view of the United States as a land of freedom and justice was shattered by fire hoses and attack dogs directed at protesters and assassinations of civil rights workers and leaders, and by Agent Orange and the napalming of Vietnamese villages. Around that time, my view of Israel also began to change. Israel, I discovered, was not a land without a people, for a people without a land, but a land whose native population had been violently driven from their homes. And those trees that my nickels helped pay for, they were planted in places where Palestinian villages had been destroyed. What I saw happening to the Palestinians did not square with a conviction that we Jews who'd suffered so much from discrimination should be the first to oppose discrimination against others. We began to realize that the admonition never again was being perverted to justify oppressing others. So we had to take that slogan and add, never again to anyone. How could it be that we Jews so horribly mistreated 
were now acting as the oppressors of another people who had absolutely nothing to do with the injustices in Europe. To understand how that happened required learning how European colonialism has shaped, or better said, misshaped the world over the past several centuries, and how that imperialist system has pitted tribe against tribe, people against people, nation against nation. All this is vitally important to understand about our world, but this is far too big a topic to unfold in one reflection or one service. Zionism and its ties to all of this is also important to understand that Zionism emerged from the soil of a racially oppressive Europe and the United States and bears the birthmarks of their racial chauvinism has been the subject of considerable investigation and writing. For those who want to explore this topic, there's a list of books I've found helpful. It's in the special page in your order of service. That many Jews after the Holocaust felt a desperate need for safety and looked for it in Israel, that too is crucial to understand. And why was that so? In large part because the Europeans, especially the Germans, murdered millions of Jews, while countries like England and the United States shut their doors to them in their hour of greatest desperation. I can say this with great certainty because this is exactly what happened to my own family. I spent the last few years writing about the Nazi Holocaust, how it destroyed much of my family, about how my grandfather, seeing a genocide approaching in 1941, carried out acts of resistance to it. In writing about the cruel deaths of members of my family, I was overcome and frequently cried. Today I cry for the Palestinians. But more than that, as we grieve for Palestinians, as we rage at the injustices that they have suffered and continue to endure, we need to be aware that we may well be approaching a crossroads for humanity. The very power of the events of these last months and the movement that has risen speaks to that. Two potential futures that confront us, one with the kind of death and destruction we see in Gaza becoming even more widespread, and another more liberatory future. I sense a positive potential on the faces and in the voices of the millions, especially of the youth, who are beginning to awaken to fight against injustice, that this determination could develop and become a movement for sweeping social change is a frightening specter for the guardians of the status quo, some of whom are using the charge of anti-Semitism to discredit this awakening movement. What I am seeing in the evolving movement for Palestinian solidarity is Jewish, Palestinian, and other youth standing together in growing recognition that anti-Semitism and Israeli apartheid and all forms of racism and discrimination stem from the same systemic or source. And it is crucially important to understand that source so that we can all move towards a world without such oppression and divisions. I believe passionately that we have to keep our eyes, our minds, and our hearts open 
stay alert to new ideas and new possibilities, including revolutionary ones, and not be afraid to discard old prejudices and thoughts about that's just the way the world is because the world is changing and it needs to. All of us can choose how or whether we answer this universal call to never again for anyone. I know I must. Thank you very much. As we prepare for our time of prayer and meditation, I invite you to consider our candles in front of the sanctuary 
They're there for us every week to use as we would at any time. And we encourage those joining us on live stream to consider the same ritual at home. I lit two candles this morning in recognition of dear friends, Ron Shear and Richard Falls. Blessings to you both. In this moment that we consciously set aside for prayer, in this moment of stillness, we choose to pause, to pray, to rest. On this first day of Advent, a season of anticipation where many look forward to a sacred birth and to this week of Hanukkah, when others will mark a celebration of a miracle of lights, and to this season of shorter days, plants becoming dormant, all sentient beings in the North recognizing the need to pause for rest and restoration. In this quiet time, where we mark this past week's World's AIDS Day, remembering so many we lost to AIDS, the tapestry of lives unfinished, and to this moment when many wonder, will there be an end to suffering? Will there be an end to my suffering? Into this quiet moment, we come together as one body in reflection and prayer. Nameless one, spirit and presence, Guide us as we give thought and word to what we feel in this moment. We come with hope that we can find space to honor hope, recognize pain and suffering, and celebrate beauty, all with both feet firmly planted in this present moment. And so we reflect on all that we hold in this life and all that might yet to be we reflect on where we have come from, what we have witnessed. We ask, how did we reach this point? Is this what we were born to do? Is this our destiny? How can we find solace and redemption in the midst of so much suffering? And we also remember how resilient we are, how resourceful, and that day does follow night, that others have walked our path, and we remember our ancestors who, despite overwhelming odds, lived to see another day and another until, eventually, we were born. Join me now for a moment of silent meditation, reflection, and prayer.
How lovely are the messengers that preach us the gospel of peace. And together we say, Amen. We are lucky in this community for so many reasons, all the great Christmas sweaters, good sense of humor, but also we have some members of this community who have been dedicated to causes and issues and questions 
that are of the utmost importance in our world and done so for decades and invite their passion and concerns here for us to explore with them and join link arms with them. And we have members of this community who have been dedicated to the Palestine and Israel, the people there, the questions, the fight for shared humanity and peace and human rights for decades. People like Bruce, people like Dolores, people like Jeff Peckrell and others. People who have spent time there, people who have loved ones there, feel accountable to that part of the world in a particularly deep and binding way. And they have been doing programming with us and witnessing since October 7th. This hasn't been an easy issue in many houses of worship, even ones who are Jewish or Muslim. Many communities have divided opinions, which says to me how complicated and how layered the history, the culture, the communities of Gaza and Israel are. And I know from talking to some of you that we each have loyalties, certain ideals we put higher than others, a perspective informed by what we've learned or experienced, which is almost always only partial, but still guides us. Personally, in my personal life, I feel accountable to, well, actually in my professional life, I should say, I feel accountable to Muslim colleagues, one of whom told me at the interfaith Thanksgiving service that she had lost 100 members of her extended family so far in the conflict, and to colleagues who feel the existential threat of what happened in Israel. Personally, to a friend who's Afghani and Muslim whose opinion is layered, and another best friend, half of whose family, like like Bruce's, was wiped out in the Holocaust and whose parents feel a level of terror and despair about what they see in the world that I have never seen in them before. These two unflappable scientists and pragmatists waking in the middle of the night, crying. And I've known them since I was 12. And I don't feel nearly informed enough to speak with authority on the issues in Gaza. So I apologize as your minister for that. Do you think that there are things that we probably all agree on, or most of us, and I'm careful to say that I hope I'm not overstating it, I think we all stand by the need to fight for the recognition of basic human rights and for those to be respected and restored anywhere in the world, for humanitarian aid to flow freely that none should be denied food or water or medical aid, certainly no nation that we fund and support should be allowed to do so if we have any control at all, which it's not clear sometimes to me that we do have. I've written, as I'm sure most of you have, to politicians on formal letterhead arguing for a ceasefire that has now come and gone. I do it, though, as a neighbor I ran into the other day, a Muslim who I got to know, not on my block, actually, though I saw him around, but when I showed up at the school board as a religious leader to argue for the right for Muslim students to have a day off in honor of Ramadan, and he was there with his son. 
He was despairing at a bench outside our local store, and when I asked him what was going on with him, he said that he called and wrote every day, not because he th thought it did anything, but because he needed to do something. Many of us feel a sense that we should do and must do something, and it's hard to know what. I'm not supportive of Netanyahu or his dangerous, theocratic, anti-democratic leanings, but then I don't think a lot of Israelis, as we saw in the streets, were in favor of it. I do think Israel has a right to exist, and I believe in the Israel that has equal rights and opportunities for Arab Christians and Muslims and Arab Jews who live there too. I find the story of the founding of Israel, what I know of it, to be complicated and troubling. I think about the man, the Muslim man, who came to speak at the church in New Jersey that I served. He was probably in his 70s at the time, and he pulled a chain out from underneath his shirt as part of his speech, and there was a key on it, and he said he'd worn it since he was a child, as so many others did, he said. It was the key to his family's house that they were driven to during the creation of Israel. And he takes that key as a reminder of what happened and the memory of a woman who refused to leave her house who was shot in front of it. It's deeply troubling that we as the United States were part of carving out someone else's land it's something for which we have to do some moral reckoning, even if there are lots of historic ties and claims on that land and rights to be there. And I also feel an incredible moral hypocrisy about getting on any high horse about that history, while a far more hideous, older history of seizing people's land is here for us to reckon with. We need to get our own house in order in terms of reparations in this country and speak with a lot of humility about others who did the same double standards are part of language that we need to erase from our political and social language. Be aware of. Of course, none of our moral work also, or our thinking about our work, needs to be either or. It's both and so often. And in that sense, for me, it's about means and ends also. And for me right now, what feels most clear is that, particularly as a minister of this community, how we do the work of debating this issue or any hard issue in front of us. And there are, so far, have been hard issues in front of us at every single turn. in my seven years here. But how we do the debate and the conversations as painful and fraught as the ones we are facing even right now is as important as what we do. Which is why it has meant a lot to me that those of us who are active, those among us who are most active in the issues around the Middle East have really fought to stay in a compassionate, respectful dialogue 
here in the community and among us. It's why it mattered to me that Richard Davis Lowell stepped aside with our plan for this Sunday to yield to another conversation out of a shared sense of a larger good we all try to hold. If you knew how much Bruce left on the cutting room floor from his reflection and what he wanted to say today and felt called to say because of a sense of what we could contain in this time, you would know the sacrifices he's willing to make too to be in dialogue and to be in it together. It's meant so much work, good work, to find common grounds like Wayne and Rick Pittman did, to talk about things like this service or programs we can lead or ways we can step into the world together, even as some of us go in different ways out into the world too, but here to do as much as we can together. It's meant hard conversations about the language we use in our conversations here at church, not all of which we've ended up on the same page about. Lao Tzu, the sixth century Chinese philosopher, founder of Taoism, once famously wrote, if there's to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. And if there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. In other words, it's not irrelevant how we weather these times, times like these. We won't have actually lived our commitment to our values at any point in our history as a community. We won't have lived in this moment our commitment to peace, for instance, if we were to bring the inhumanity of war, <laughs> the pitting of people against each other into how we are together. So much of how we engage has to be like Wayne's work that we bring into it, the spirit of transformation that we hope then to see in the world like a virus that replicates. Rumi, who's the 13th century Sufi mystic poet, once wrote out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing there is a field, I will meet you there. To me, that quote doesn't mean that doing right and doing wrong don't matter. It just means that there is something else we always have to keep in sight when we do the work of sorting out the world, this place where ultimately we're all gonna have to meet to rebuild the world. So how to live the hardest moments with that place as our true north that we're aiming at. Because at the end, it's not just going to be the Jews and the Gazan Palestinians kneeling in the rubble to put their part of the world back together. It's going to be all of us. And it's going to be here. A 
A few weeks ago, the Interfaith Council of San Francisco, whose board of trustees I chair for this year, did some amazing hard work bringing Jewish, a Jewish leader and a Muslim leader, both of whom have this incredible support of the larger landscape of their religious peers, bring them to the table to talk about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. We have, could not have gotten them to the table to talk about anything else. And there were lots of times when I think it looked like we weren't gonna be able to get everybody to the table. If you watch the briefing, and I put the um, sort of help to find the link in, your, in that insert in the order of service, if you watch it, you can see the tension between them, right? There's so much anger and hurt that everybody is bringing to that moment, understandably. But on this one thing they could agree, that there was a rise in hate crime in our nation, around the world. There was a rise in fear and in what that fear was being allowed to give dangerous permission to in our culture. And it worried them both enough to sit across the table virtually from each other. Swastikas painted on windows on Market Street Warnings like the one I received from the U.S. government that said there were threats to houses of worship in the Bay Area, especially Jewish ones. Three young Muslim women in hijab were subjected to a barrage of ugly language from two white men outside the Tenderloin Rec Center recently, witnessed by Bill Fricker, the head of Up on Top. He went up to them immediately, he asked how they were, and they shrugged. Happens all the time. The head of the Islamic schools in San Francisco had more children transfer to the school this year because of bullying in the public schools, some of it by teachers, some of it reported with no repercussions from the administration. Pe people who are teaching in the schools that Islam is dangerous, that Muslims are terrorists. One child's nose broken. It begins, they said in the briefing, it begins with permissiveness. It begins with language, actually. The Design Museum in Dogpatch, I went to it yesterday, Rohit and I did, not knowing what was there, just to have an excuse to get out of the rain and into the world. It was this incredible Design for Peace exhibit. You have to go see it. It's small and it's lovely really healing to lean into this like creative work of imagining all these people imagining and designing things that are about a better world, a more peaceful world. And one effort was started by the work of an Iraqi journalist who seeing how hate crime, hate, hate language led to hate action. And so what would it mean to create a lexicon of hate language and then offer alternative language in various places to describe the same concerns, but ones that wasn't inflammatory? So what were the thoughtful substitutions that de-escalated? There hasn't been one made for the US yet. It hasn't been funded. We need to find out what it would cost. But online, you can see ones from various countries and I know, as Bruce mentioned, there's a concern right now that charges, for instance, of anti-Semitism are being used to shut down legitimate criticism 
and conversation. And in a podcast with Richard Dawkins that I listened to yesterday, he had a similar warning about Islamophobia, about it being launched at many, including him, who he says rightly criticize oppressive, religiously based norms in many nations. And the right to do that, to have a legitimate criticism that is not Islamophobic, but rightfully fearful. And both of those concerns are valid and have a place, right? To not use them inappropriately because that robs them of the power to name Islamophobia and anti-Semitism when they are really at work in the world and they are really at work in the world and they need to be called out. Inflammatory language inflames. Prejudicial language perpetuates prejudice and what prejudice gives permission for. And there's so much more I could say about this. It's my cutting room floor, I guess. I think that Bruce was right in his line that I love most in his reflection about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and racism and hate and all the othering that's at the root of human evils in the world and to really call them out and pay attention to it, to parse in detail how it shows up, the way we have been looking at what it means when anti-blackness shows up and what it feeds, right, which is racism and inequity, but paying attention to the subtle, not so subtle, once you see them, ways it shows up. And to do that again and again, and also around Muslims and also for Jews, conspiracy theories about Jews being in control. Actually, it was your father, right, who had this great joke that he passed along. I didn't put it in the service, but it was about how he, this person from one of the concentration camps about how he preferred to read the Nazi papers because in the Nazi papers, the Jews were in control of everything and powerful. But in the world he lived in, I wasn't what it looked like. It's a great passage. I hope it's in your book. And one-liners about Jews and money, like the one, just one example that uh, Bruce gave from his childhood, and implications that Muslim men are criminals or violent, or Muslim women are passive and not agents of their own destiny, even as we name things that are wrong in the world, that we don't perpetuate that. Any language that compares people to animals or makes them subhuman? Criticism of the choice to wear hijab or kippah? poking fun of either, scapegoating in any way, shape, or form, double standards, all of it. There's so much thoughtful reflection on what anti-Semitism and what Islamophobia look like in the just subtle language and tropes that get reinforced, let alone inflammatory language that is more obvious that strikes the match that we cannot control the run of. There's so much that we can't do, but there's a lot we can figure out how to hold heartbreak and hope together with love, how to have hard conversations where we speak commandingly together and then out in the world commandingly and clearly and with care, live the heart of peace we seek to see replicated in the world, seek and find our common ground the way Rick and Wayne did because the world moves so much faster when we're able to do that to the places we wanna to get to. 
and prepare ourselves because ultimately, ultimately, all of us always, after each hard chapter of life and in the world and all the heartbreak and all the loss, we all have to kneel in the dust and the rubble, side by side, in our communities, in the world, after the wars are over, and try and get it right one more time. So how do we stay ready for that? May peace prevail, may mercy shine upon us. May we see right and do right and be good and be kind. May peace and love prevail. Let's sing together, let's sing. Let's sing hymn number 34. Though I may speak with bravest fire. Or join pause in the corner. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
Amen.